Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Follow along. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we're thankful that you have brought us together, and uh, we pray that you would speak into the lives of those who couldn't be with us today, that you would remind them of your love and care for them, and that you would remind them that we love them and care for them. Father, move us uh, among with your, with your spirit today, we pray that you would um, do something in us that is beyond our expectations, something that is beyond business as usual, that when we leave here today, we will have known that we've been in the presence of God and that we've been changed by your spirit, by your power. Lord, we pray that you would not allow us to be complacent indifferent or hardened toward you, that you would renew us and burden us for the lost and hopeless in our community and even throughout our world. You've placed Milton Community Church here for eternal reasons. I pray that you would convince us of this truth. We pray that you will keep our minds, hearts, schedules focused on you even during this uh, busy, busy season. Guard our affections and our energy and time from the lure of the world. Give us eyes to see beyond the physical, to see people as you see them. I pray that you would make your word powerful and effective in us and through us. We pray, as we've already been challenged this morning, uh, to pray for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we might be good stewards that you would bless our gifts abundantly and use them, Lord, to bless the work that's going on in some of the hard places of this world. And I pray that you will supply uh, the financial needs of this congregation uh, as we continue to uh, do be about your work and uh, all for your glory, and that you would take, again, our faithful stewardship and that you will multiply it and use it 
Lord, to make your name great. We thank you for how you continually provide for us. You are so faithful. Thank you for the privilege we have to participate in your work as stewards, stewards of your grace, stewards of your resources, stewards of these lives that you've created. Lord, I want to pray especially this morning for uh, the ministry that is Whispering Hope and the crisis pregnancy counseling and just all the good work that they're doing. We're grateful, Lord, for uh, changed minds that you've produced uh, through their counseling efforts. Uh, that even through texting with young women that you're able to um, encourage them and challenge them, Lord, to continue with their pregnancies. I pray that you would uh, continue to do a work, Lord, the abortion industry in our uh, culture, in our particular country is uh, so out of control. And uh, we pray that, Lord, you might do something in our hearts and minds as a nation uh, that would lead us to repentance and to uh, changing our position, Lord, to protect life and see it as sacred, as given by you, and that you will continue to use whispering hope in that endeavor to push back against darkness. Lord, um, they've mentioned also they have two moms who are getting ready to have babies that have struggled with those doubts. And so we pray that you give them safe deliveries and healthy babies, and that you would uh, provide all that they need as they go through this process, and that, Lord, you might help them to recognize soon uh, your hand upon those special lives that you've entrusted to them. Give them wisdom as parents to raise them up under your admonition. Now, Lord, again, we thank you for our time here together. We pray that you would bless it and that you would use it for your glory and for our edification. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, Time Magazine um, published an article about Jesus' identity. In the article, the writer asks some very interesting questions. And this is what he wrote. How is Jesus to be understood? Did he stride out of the wilderness 2,000 years ago to preach a gentle message of peace and brotherhood? Or did he perhaps advocate for some form of revolution? When did he realize his mission would end up with death on a cross? Did he view himself as the promised Messiah? Did he understand himself to be both God and man? These are good and fair questions to ask. Generally, people seem to think rather carelessly about Christ, in, particularly in our world today. Most simply adopt one of the standing stereotypes when thinking about Jesus, that he was simply a philosopher or that he was a good man. Maybe he was a teacher. Maybe he was a revolutionary. Maybe he was just a religious prophet like so many others that had come before him. The Apostle John, in his gospel, goes right to the heart of the identity of Jesus, right in the beginning of these verses, and he states his case very clearly. Let me state it again as he has written, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was more than a good man, more than a teacher, more than a prophet. John says he's the word. It's an interesting way to describe the Son of God as the word. Words are powerful things. Words can be a force for good. Words can be an influence or have an impact of negativity upon us. You remember that adage that you learned as a, as a kid growing up? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt us. Words will never harm us. Now, technically, it's true. Words do not cause physical harm, but we all know that words do cause pain. They do cause hurt. They can sting and wound very deeply at times. They may not make us bleed or they may not threaten our lives, but they can do and often do harm. Parents use words to inspire and encourage, to reinforce good behavior in their children. Teachers, coaches, preachers even, instruct and exhort in helpful ways using words. Authors use words to pass along information, to record history, and to exhort us through entertainment ventures even, through just reading a book for pleasure. As influential as human words are and as prominent as they are each and every day in our lives, there's no match for the power of the Word of God, the Word of God. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Jeremiah 23, 29, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, It is not my, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. We're going to think about two words this morning. One of them is word, and the other is promise. We'll see that this text actually connects to what we've been studying as we've gone through the book of Genesis together. So let's look at, first of all, word. What does he mean when he uses word or logos? What does this mean? There's a clear and obvious connection to Genesis 1-1 from the Apostle John here. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Well, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is it coincidental or is there purpose here? I think there is purpose. The apostle shares his purpose for writing the gospel near the end of the gospel when he says this in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is His purpose for writing this gospel. So He's making the case that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He intends to make Jesus known, especially regarding His deity. 
So he goes back to the very beginning to prove that Jesus was not some creation, that he was not someone who was just a descendant of Adam, but that he is God. He wants us to understand this truth about the Word. There are three things, I think, that he tells us here about the Word that are important for us to focus on. First of all, that the Word is not created. The Word is uncreated. The Word is not created, but existed prior to creation. One of the earliest heresies that confronted the church was Arianism. Arianism, the basic principle behind Arianism is that Jesus is a created being, but he's not divine. It continues to influence various religions even today. We know that Islam does not believe that Jesus is God. They think that it's repugnant to think that God has a son. Uh, They think of God entering into some sort of reproduction process with a woman and producing a child just like we would. It's that they think that's what that means when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus was a created being, and thus he is not divine. Unitarians also won't acknowledge that Jesus is divine, believing he is some part of the creation, but not not God in and of himself. The Nicene Creed that was written in 325 A.D. was a result of the church coming together, the Council of Nicaea, where they addressed this uh, false teaching by the Arians, and they pushed back on it, and this is what they said. Listen carefully. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. John makes it clear that the Word existed before anything else was created. Leon Morris said it this way. He said, the Word existed before creation, which makes it clear that the Word was not created. The Word is not to be included among created things. The Word existed before creation was spoken into being. The Word, therefore, must have been God, must have been with God. John says both are true. So the second thing he wants us to know, not only is the Word uncreated, but the Word was with God. In Genesis 1, there's a continual refrain throughout that first chapter. It's, And God said, and God said, and God said, over and over. There is no doubt that God's word is what brought everything into being. That he spoke it and it became. This affirms his personhood. Thinking about the word being with God affirms that he is a person with God. They had a relationship together. This helps us clarify a verse like Genesis 1 26 where the word says let us make man in our image. Who is the our? Who is us that God is talking about? Well he's talking about he's speaking to the word. John writes he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only is the word a person, 
He is also the executor of creation. He's the one who's executing this process of creation. The word of God going forth. Now there's a mystery there. We don't always understand how this fits. We can't do it with our finite minds. But this is what God is telling us through his revelation. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 we read this. For by him all things, by him is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When John speaks of the word, he means God the Son, Jesus Christ, who forever lives in relationship with God and always does the will of God the Father. So not only does John tell us that the Word is uncreated and that the Word was with God, but he also tells us the Word was God. The Word was God. It's not only a companion to God, but He is very God. I've already mentioned that many work against this. They speak and push against the idea of Jesus being deity. But if you take the deity out of Christ, you've only got a man who is a descendant of Adam, and therefore he has sin, just like you and I have sin. He's unable to atone for his own sin, let alone the sins of all of us. They seek to undermine his deity and refute his deity. This has always been true. Listen to this exchange between Jesus and Caiaphas in Matthew's gospel. And the high priest, Caiaphas, said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. He deserves to die. The Ebionites were part of a Jewish sect that believed Jesus was the Messiah. But they denied his deity. They believed he was a great man, possibly even the greatest of men. But they believed he was anointed by the Spirit of God for the work of Messiah, to be the Messiah. But they still hold that he was only a man with only a human nature. And they base this on the uh, accounts of Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit seemed to anoint him after he was baptized, thinking that the Holy Spirit came upon him at that point in time and prepared him for the work that God would do through him. But as I said, without deity, Jesus is the descendant of Adam and is in bondage to sin just like us. But Scripture is clear. He is divine. He is God. John tells us this. We've seen and heard this from other disciples. Remember Thomas, how much trouble Thomas had? He was a doubter, right? I use Thomas as uh, one of my passwords to get into an area on one of my computers because I'm a doubter at heart when it comes to technology. Now, you can't get into my uh, retirement account there, 
uh, using that password. That's not it. But I do have some places where I use it because I don't put a lot of confidence in them. But Thomas was a doubter. But you remember after Jesus' resurrection when he appeared and he said to Thomas, he said, here, touch me. See the scars and touched me. And following that, Thomas said, what? My Lord and my God. He didn't say, well, you're just a man like me. You're just a man like any other. You're a good teacher. You may even made a great martyr. He said, my Lord and my God. If God is all-powerful, and we believe that he is, then why didn't he just speak salvation into being? Why was the incarnation necessary? Why did he need to come into this world and take on human flesh and live among us? That's a valid question, don't you think? God's all-powerful. He's able to do whatever his word says. The incarnation of Jesus does not save us in and of itself. But it is essential as a link in God's plan of redemption. John Murray explains it this way. He said, the blood of Jesus is blood that has the requisite efficacy and virtue only by reason of the fact that he who is the Son, the effulgence of the Father's glory and the express image of his substance became himself also partaker of flesh and blood, and thus was able by one sacrifice to perfect all those who are sanctified. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The incarnation displays the greatness of God. Our God is vast. If he created all that we know, and we've talked before extensively about creation and how it stretches out before us endlessly. It's so huge, so vast, and yet God spoke it into being with a word. How big is that? How huge is that? And yet he was born as a baby in a manger. I can't get my mind around that, and I dare you to say that you can He's not distant. He's not withdrawn from us. He's humble. He's a giving God. He's an unselfish God. He's a benevolent God. He's purposeful. He's not random. He's not reactionary. He doesn't thrive. He never has a plan B. Just think about that. You're always thinking about plan B and plan C and plan D, right? God never thinks about plan B, C, and D. They're not not a part of his makeup. He has one plan. He's bringing that plan to fruition. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways. He is not a God we can put in a box and control. Our God is a God who redeems us by his own blood, not a God who leaves us in our sin. Our God is great indeed. So why? The incarnation. This brings us to our second word. Not only do we have word, but this connects to the promise, right? We've been talking a lot through Genesis about promise. God is a God of promise. 
After Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, God pronounced a curse upon creation. They'd been warned. They'd been warned. Do as I tell you. Do as I've instructed you. For if you don't, in that day you will die. But they did anyway. They did what they thought. They did what they wanted rather than obeying God. In Genesis 3.15, in the aftermath of that, God speaks to the serpent, to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first Prediction, the first prophecy of a redeemer. The seed of a woman. Not the seed through the male, as we know biologically is what's true, but the seed of a woman. A virgin shall give birth to this one who will come and bruise the head or slay the enemy. It was the first mention of a redeemer, but others followed. As we've been observing through our study in Genesis. And God's plan began to take shape. And it continues to unfold before us. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We've repeatedly gone back to this. Now God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? Why? Why? is that? How's that going to happen? By sending the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, through Abraham's descendants. Genesis 17, 19. Remember, Abraham was pleading with God Use Ishmael, I'm an old man. This is not going to happen. I'm not going to have a biological son other than Ishmael. Just use him. And God said, no, I'm not going to. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. Then we come to Matthew 1. 18 through 21, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Galatians 4, 3-5, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And back to our text, John 14, 
verses 14 through 18 in John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received, listen, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word took on humanity and lived among us for more than 30 years. I don't have a category for understanding this. Neither do you. We're limited by our finite minds. We think of God incarnate often as two distinct persons. He's a human. He's divine. It's hard for us to put them together. If we put them together, we think of one being incomplete, the other being incomplete, and together they make something complete. And people will use even Philippians chapter 2 to support this idea. This is what it says there in verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Some think that Jesus at that point put aside, laid aside, I've heard people say, he took his deity off and took on humanity or took on flesh. This is not correct. This is not helpful. They treat the incarnation as a subtraction in order to to become man, he had to subtract deity in order to take on flesh and live among us and carry out the work that God had sent him to do. But emptying himself does not mean that he laid his deity aside. It simply means that he, he surrendered his volition to control that will, to make his own decisions, and submitted himself completely to the Father. That he only did that which the Father instructed him to do. While remaining fully God with all God's attributes and powers. He just simply did not use those attributes of his own volition. He only did what the Father instructed. Fully God as if he was not human. Fully human as if he was not God. Blow your mind? Does mine. I don't understand that. God in all his vastness and greatness and majesty and glory was able to come and somehow put himself in the confines of a human body and dwell among us for 30 years, fully flesh as if not God, but fully God as if not flesh, and put himself under the law, under the law so that he could fulfill the law where Adam failed to keep the law, where you and I failed to keep the law, he perfectly fulfilled the law. And satisfied God. He went to a cross. Not for his own sin. But he went there to take on your sin. And my sin. And there he laid himself upon the altar. And was sacrificed. Taking on the wrath of God. Consuming every last drop of God's displeasure. For our sin. 
And he exhausted it and satisfied and arose on the third day as God validated his acceptance and approval of this sacrifice, this entire work. You and I are forgiven of our sin because of his shed blood, but we are justified through his resurrection life and made conformed to his image, being conformed to his image. John 1, 9 through 13 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lugdunum, Gaul, which is in kind of central France today. He was a staunch opponent of heresy and very influential witness concerning the development of the biblical canon. He believed that unless the word became flesh, human beings are not fully redeemed. Listen to his statement to this point. And I quote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he himself is. Can I say it again? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he himself is. What an incredible thought. That Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new covenant in his blood. Last week we observed the Lord's Supper and we rehearsed Jesus' words that he spoke to his disciples the night he was crucified. He took the cup that night and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. By the shedding of his blood, the sins of the people were covered or canceled. So Paul writes in Colossians 2, Without the incarnation, this is not possible. We're still in our sins. Christ did come in flesh and died in our stead. And those who believe his gospel and repent of sin, trusting in this atoning work, are forgiven of sin and restored to relationship with God again. Is this true for you? I mean, honestly, this morning, I ask you, To search your own heart. Is this true? Can you affirm this in your life? If not, I want to exhort you to believe the gospel. Today, even right now, to put your faith and hope and trust in what Christ has done for you. How does one do this? How does someone come to Christ for forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life? The scripture says you must call upon his name. Doesn't mean that you repeat a prayer that someone uh, directs you toward. But it means you do pray, you do call upon God. But you have to speak, this prayer has to come from within you. Not just simply taking someone's words and repeating them. That may work if it matches up with what's going on in your heart. But it's more than just a repetition of a prayer. 
John, I mean, Romans 9 or 10 and 9 through 13, 9 through 13 states it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's the boss, right? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's clearly an exhortation to pray, to come to God, to approach him through prayer. And even him hearing our prayer, we must access him and come to him through Christ. We come on the authority of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And we approach God and we acknowledge to him, Lord, your word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short. We are all under the law and I have failed. I have failed to keep the law. Even if you failed in one point, the scripture says, you're guilty of the whole thing. And so when I come to God, I come to him acknowledging, confessing that this is true. This is true for me. I'm not a good person. I'm a, I'm a failure. I have failed to keep the law. I may be good according to other human beings, but I'm not good according to God who is perfect and righteous and holy and without sin. So, yes, I have failed to keep your law. And I deserve your wrath and your judgment. I confess this to you, Father. I agree with what you say about me, your pronouncement. But while this, while this means I deserve your judgment, Christ came into this world to live a life that I couldn't live in my place and to die for the sins that I've committed so that I could be forgiven. This is what your word says. I also confess this is true and believe this is true. And so I ask that Christ's shed blood would be applied to my life, to my heart, to save and redeem me from my sin. To have him, to have this great exchange take place where my sin is placed upon him at Calvary and he paid for it there and now I receive his righteousness, the righteousness that you proclaimed that he has completely fulfilled when you said, this is my son and him I am well pleased. That I receive this in place of my sin because you said this is the way it works. Make this true in my life. I have no other recourse. I have no other option. The scripture says a prayer like that, God receives. And that even that moment, regeneration takes place in the heart. You're created a new creature. And then destined to become conformed to his image. To live into that perfection forever and ever. Heaven's good news. But I'm going to tell you what's better news is being conformed to the image of Christ. Right? That's the best news. I pray that that's your life today. And if you have not, and all of this still doesn't make sense to you, I welcome a conversation with you anytime. Today, anytime this week, 
whenever it's convenient for you, but don't procrastinate. This is a struggle. You got doubts. It's time you sat down and had a conversation with someone, maybe just a fellow church member, someone that you see Christ evidenced in their lives and begin to pursue the gospel for yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your incarnation, for being willing to come into this world and redeem us, save us from ourselves, from our sin. I pray that each of us today will have uh, the boldness, Lord, to search our own hearts and to listen and heed your prognosis of what's going on in us and that we might turn to you for forgiveness. Lord, and I pray that the gospel will be ever on our lips, especially during this season, as many people um, are intrigued and interested at what all the fuss about Christmas means. They may have wrong understandings, but Lord, give us the boldness to have conversations with them and to share the hope that resides within us. That they too might turn and receive Christ and his forgiveness. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.